Scripture reading tonight will be from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Last Sunday night, we started a three-part series dealing with the subject of homosexuality. What does the Bible say about it, and what do we need to know in response? Last week, the lesson dealt with the teaching of Scripture, and what we did was just to look at the passages that specifically talk about this subject uh, in a little bit of detail. Tonight, we're going to look at the question, how would somebody who wanted to follow Jesus and try to be a Christian, how would somebody try to justify this? Because it is happening in the religious world around us. And I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but I will tell you, if you live long enough and if the Lord allows the world to go on long enough, some of the things we're talking about tonight, you will hear sooner or later within the Lord's church. You'll hear some people saying some of the things that we're going to bring to your attention this evening. And so we'll deal with some common arguments that people make to try to biblically justify homosexuality. And then next Lord's, uh, Lord's Day evening, Lord willing, we're going to talk about how can we build bridges with our neighbors, our friends who are living this lifestyle? What can we do as God's people to help share the gospel, bring them to Christ, and to share the hope that's found in Jesus? The title of the series is Such Were Some of You, and that's taken from 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11, where the Bible speaks about a number of sins that people had been practicing in Corinth. And then Paul says, "Been such were some of you. And some of the people that were worshiping in Corinth 2,000 years ago in the church there had been homosexuals prior to becoming Christians. They were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified by Jesus Christ, and they could live as New Testament Christians, and the same hope is still available today for anyone who wants to submit to the law, to the authority of Jesus Christ. And that's our hope and that's our prayer for everyone around us, for all of our neighbors, no matter how they're living. We want people to turn from their lives of, of sin and rebellion to God and to follow Him and to follow His will. Very briefly then this evening, five arguments that are very common in the religious world trying to justify homosexuality scripturally. Five arguments. Without further ado, here's number one. Probably the most common thing that you will hear said if someone is trying to support a biblical uh, justification of homosexuality is this. Well, when the Bible condemns all uh, homosexuality in all those passages that we looked at last time, for example, Leviticus 18, 22, Leviticus 20, verse 13, Romans 1, 24 through 27, 1 Corinthians 6 that we just talked about, when the Bible mentions it, it's not really talking about the practice itself, it's talking about abuse. And, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a few moments, but then the the, the the addition to this is, but the Bible always supports love. And so if two people love each other, if two people care about each other, that's a good thing, biblically is what they're saying. And so the Bible, yes, these passages, they're specifically about abuse, but the Bible always justifies and upholds and supports a loving relationship between two people, even two people of the same gender, they would argue. And so just briefly, how do you respond to this? How does the Bible respond to this? A couple of things to keep in mind. 
The Bible does indeed say that God is love. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. That is absolutely true. That is absolutely in Scripture. God does support loving relationships. However, the Bible also teaches that God is holy, and this is frequently overlooked by our religious neighbors. The Bible says in Isaiah 6 verse 3 that the seraphim were flying around in the throne room of God and they were crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So God is not only a God of love, but he is a God of holiness. And holiness has to do with separation, separateness, apartness from sin. God can have nothing to do with that which is sinful. And when you put those two things together, God's love is therefore a holy love. That is critical to understand, not just on this subject, but on many others as well. Yes, God supports loving relationships as long as those relationships are holy relationships. That is, they're sanctioned and sanctified by Him. A relationship that He says is right and proper and good, and it does not you're not sinning by being in this relationship. God supports those kinds of loving relationships. His love is a holy love. We just sang in Kids Sing a few moments ago, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. You know what it means there in 1 Corinthians 13, 6 when it says that? It says, it's saying that love is holy. Yes, it's love, but it's a holy love that God uses, that God has. Romans 12 verse 9 commands us to abhor, to hate what is evil, and to cling to what is good. And so anytime that somebody says, well, love is what the Bible upholds, yes, that's true. However, the rest of the story is that the Bible upholds a holy kind of love, a kind of love that's separate from sin and that is devoted to the glory of God. Mark it down, it's not just true of homosexuality, it's true of every sin. When people misunderstand or fail to account for God's holiness, then God's love and His grace become a license to sin. It has always been this way. When people do not take into account the holiness of our God, His love and His grace become a license and a justification to sin. We need to understand and appreciate what holiness is because our God is holy, holy, holy. A second argument that people might use to try to justify biblically homosexual behavior, homosexual lifestyle is this. Last week, we talked about Leviticus 18.22, if you remember. We also talked about Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. And both of those describe homosexual behavior. And then they say, for it is an abomination. It uses that word abomination. And so some Bible scholars trying to justify this lifestyle have said, well, abomination, yes, but what the Bible's referring to there is pagan rituals or idolatrous practices. And maybe you'll hear this one of these days when somebody says, well, that's, that's all that God was condemning. He wasn't forbidding the practice. He was just forbidding the association with idolatry and things like that. And so you've got that word abomination found in Leviticus 18.22. What does it mean? In the Hebrew language, it just means something that is detestable, something that is loathsome, something that is repulsive. That's what an abomination is. There are many things in the Old Testament that are called an abomination. 
And the reason why they're called this is because God's trying to make it as clear and as plain as he can to his people, Israel. We cannot have a part with this. This is loathsome. This is an abomination. This is nothing that we should welcome or celebrate. When you look at the, New, or the Old Testament, the word sometimes is used to describe idolatry. To build an idol and to put it in your house and to bow down and worship it or to go up on the high places and worship an idol or, or to practice, um, you know, anything associated with idolatry is an abomination. It uses that word a number of times in Deuteronomy 7, verses 25 and 26. However, the word abomination is not exclusively used to describe idolatry. For example, the word is much broader. It's used to describe in Deuteronomy 25, dishonest scales. So if you're, a, if you're a merchant in the marketplace and you're using scales that are false so that you're getting a little bit more of the product and giving a little bit less to your customer, that's dishonest. That is an abomination according to Deuteronomy 25 verses 13 through 16. Not only that, unclean animals are described, and there are a lot of them. In Leviticus 11, 10 through 23, all described as an abomination. Nothing to do with idolatry here. These are just animals that God said to Israel, you shall have no part with these. You, you shall have nothing to do with these animals. They are unclean. They are an abomination. And then again, the argument, um, the, the word is brought in its use. The shepherds in the Egyptians' eyes. The Bible describes that the Egyptians, they, they, they uh, looked at shepherds as an abomination in the days of Genesis chapter 46, verses, uh, verse 34, that um, the Egyptians, when they looked at shepherds, they looked at them as an abomination. The point being, the word is used in a lot of different ways to describe a lot of different things in the Old Testament. You cannot just take the idea that this always deals with pagan idolatry and idol worship and say, that's all that's being condemned in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. It just doesn't work. It doesn't do to use that argument. Incidentally, this is Old Testament. Jesus never repudiated he never said, you know, Moses got it wrong in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. Jesus never came along and said, Moses was, was trying to be a little bit too harsh in what he said. Jesus affirmed every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Matthew 4, verse 4. Jesus said everything that's come from the law of Moses is to be upheld and is to be fulfilled, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus upheld this teaching from the Old Testament. Third, this evening, what arguments would people make and what might you hear? This is a very common one. By the way, I'm not listing everything that somebody might bring up. I realize that you may be familiar with some other arguments that we're not dealing with tonight. I know that. I'm trying to give you some of the most common that I've been party to and, and that I've seen and some that I think you'll probably hear one of these days if you haven't already. What about David and Jonathan in the Old Testament? I want to bring three passages to your attention that are very commonly brought up. Here they are. 1 Samuel 18, verses 3 and 4. The Bible says, then Jonathan and David, by the way, they were mighty men. They were faithful men. They were men who wanted to serve God. And they cared about each other as friends often do. The Bible says they made a covenant because... Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. A second passage, 1 Samuel 20, verse 41. As soon as the lad had gone, David arose from the place, 
toward the south, fell on his face to the ground and bowed down three times and they kissed one another and they wept together, but David more so. They're going to part ways and they're distraught over the fact that they won't be able to be together. There is enmity between David and Saul. Things are not good and David's gonna have to be on the run. And David and Jonathan are heartbroken that their friendship is now going to be distant. That's what's being described there in 1 Samuel 20. And then this third passage is brought up. 2 Samuel 1 verse 26, when Jonathan dies and news of his death comes to David's ears, David laments, he mourns over Jonathan. And here's what he says. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. And so people will take those passages and tie them together and say, you see, these two men, the Bible's telling you that their relationship was more than just friendship. Very briefly, how do you respond to this? Number one, brothers and sisters and friends, we're going to give an account for how we handle God's word. We're going to have to answer to God for what we do with his word. And anything more than deep friendship has to be read in, quote unquote, to these passages. It just has to be. There is nothing inappropriate that is hinted at or intimated in anything that David and Jonathan do with one another. Anything beyond deep friendship has just got to be read in. You've got to be looking for that and trying to justify this behavior if that's what you're going to see in those verses. These men lived 3,000 years ago in a different time, in a different culture, in a different society. And there are customs and there are things that happened then that would be strange to us, but they had nothing to do with any kind of inappropriate relationship. I've described to others that when Angie and I lived in Tanzania in East Africa, it was not uncommon to see grown men walking down the road holding hands. You know why? because they're friends. And that's what, if you're friends with somebody, if you're friends with another man in Tanzania, East Africa, it is customary. And, and you just see two men holding hands and they're, they're friends, that's all there is to it. And in America, you say, well, that's just strange. I would never do that. No, and I'm not gonna hold hands with you because I'm your friend. We're living in a different society, but that's my point. To them and that culture, there was nothing inappropriate about their behavior. And the same is true of what you're reading with David and Jonathan. Secondly, how do you respond to this? The Bible clearly affirms everything else you read about David and Jonathan says that what happened with David and Jonathan was right and good. This friendship was good. You want to study friendship biblically? You want to study what a good friend is? You read about these two men and their relationship with each other. You'll learn a lot. And Scripture cannot and does not contradict itself. You've got all these other passages in Scripture talking about homosexuality being an abomination, being a sin, being wrong. You've got all these other passages saying this. You cannot then simultaneously have the Bible affirming this relationship as being good if it's contradicting all these other passages. That's just not the way Scripture works. And then third, one writer said this, and I thought it was helpful. Deep affection is characteristic of young warriors who bond together in crisis situations. I've read a lot of history of men who've gone into battle together. You know why men who go into battle fight? Yeah, they fight for the flag on their sleeve and yeah, they fight for, fight for you know, God and country. But when they really tell you why I'm fighting, they'll say I'm fighting for the guy on my right and the guy on my left. 
because they care about one another. They're in a foreign place, they are in danger, and they're all they've got. Deep affection. This is just part of what happens when you go into battle literally together with somebody. And it's not surprising that David and Jonathan would have this kind of relationship. Nothing at all ever hinted at as being inappropriate or homosexual in their relationship, nothing. Fourth argument this evening, things that get brought up and things that are used, and again, our religious friends around us, they are heavily steeped, many of them, in all of this kind of logic and argumentation. It's helpful for us as the people of God to at least be familiar with what's being said and what's being argued. Natural and unnatural. Those terms do not refer to creation, but rather they refer to, it's argued, a person's orientation. What they're referring to in this argument is specifically this. In Romans chapter 1, especially verses 26 and 27, Paul says, their women exchange natural relations, there's that word, for those that are contrary to nature, or some translations have unnatural. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. And the argument goes like this. It says, well, Paul's not talking about something that's, you know, a matter of creation. You know, I was created a man, therefore I must be a heterosexual man. What it's saying is, if I have a predisposition to be homosexual, if I have a predisposition to, to love other men, then that's natural for me. And it would be unnatural for me to love a woman. You understand the logic? Or if a woman is, is, is predisposed to be, if she's, if she's predisposed to be in love with another woman, then it would be unnatural for her to love a man. That's the argument about this. Don't think you're not gonna hear some of these things one of these days if you haven't already. How do you respond to this? Three things to bring to your attention. Number one, the Old Testament, this is important. Paul was a Jewish man. He was raised at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament. And the Old Testament categorically rejected all homosexual activity, always. You never read about it in a positive light in the Old Testament. Paul, as a Jewish man, would also have agreed with what the Old Testament teaches about this. Therefore, if what he's saying in Romans chapter 1, the passage we just read, if what he's saying is what's being argued here, he's going to have to elaborate a lot more. He's going to have to give a lot more explanation for what he means than just to casually mention this in two verses and then move on to other things. He's going to have to stop and, as Paul often does, give us two or three chapters worth of information about someone's sexual orientation and, and those kinds of things. But he doesn't do that. Paul understood and was using the argument of Genesis 2. God created male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, a woman shall leave her home, and the two shall be one flesh. They shall cleave to one another. This is the way that God created human beings. He created us to be married in a heterosexual marriage that is monogamous, that is lifelong. That's how he created us. That was what Paul affirmed, and that's what he's affirming in Romans chapter 1. When he uses the term natural, he's talking about your biology. And he's saying your biology shows you what's natural, what's right. The way you use your biology, the way you re respond to somebody else, that shows you what's natural and what's unnatural. That's what he means in Romans 1. And then fifth this evening, 
passages or arguments that you might, you might encounter. Maybe you've heard people say this, and Jesus never talked about homosexuality. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You never find the word mentioned. It's never brought up. It's never even mentioned once. Before I give you some responses to this, and by the way, that's true. You don't read about homosexuality in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Question, where did Jesus live when he was here on this earth? In what part of the world? He lived in Israel. He was from Galilee, from Nazareth. And he preached to primarily Jewish people, although he went into some Gentile regions from time to time. But have you ever stopped to think about, we we looked at three passages from the New Testament last week, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy 1. Romans was written to people in Rome. That's a long way from Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians was written to people in Corinth. And if you know much about Corinth and the lives that were being lived in Corinth, it's not surprising that a lot of sins would be listed in that book. And 1 Timothy was written to Timothy who is preaching in Ephesus. Again, another predominantly Greek city, kind of a crossroads, a port city. And the reason why homosexuality gets brought up in those three books is because that was what was being dealt with in those cultures where those books went. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus comes and lives in Israel, preaches primarily to Jewish people. Addressing this subject would not be foremost on his mind because that was not where you'd find a lot of this kind of thing happening. But you would find it in Rome or Corinth or Ephesus. Now, what does Jesus say, by the way, when it comes to anything about how we conduct ourselves sexually, what does Jesus say? Matthew 19 is your passage. If you want to know what Jesus affirmed and what Jesus believed about how we ought to conduct ourselves, that's where you go. Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. And Jesus clearly, when they ask him, is it okay for us to just divorce our wives for any reason? Jesus clearly affirmed the Genesis account. Have you not read what happened at the beginning, what God said at the beginning, how he created them male and female, and he ordained that males would be married to females, one man, one one woman for life. What God has joined together, let not not man separate, Matthew 19, verse 6. Jesus affirmed marriage according to God's design, the way God put it together. And I told you last week, the Bible deals with this subject in two ways. It deals with it in direct passages like the ones we've been studying, but it also deals with it by affirming and upholding God's original plan. God has put sexuality in a, in a fenced area only within the confines of marriage for all of us, only within the confines of a God-ordained marriage. That's the only place where that expression is permitted by God. And that's not because he's trying to cause people to, you know, suffer or, or, or lose out or miss out on life. It's because God knows what's best for us. He designed us. He created us. He knows what's right. He knows what we're built for. And we ought to listen to his word. We ought to listen to his will regarding this subject and every other. Jesus affirmed the Genesis plan for marriage. Secondly, you ought to think about this before somebody says, well, Jesus never talked about this. Scripture tells us that after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven. And then he didn't stop talking. He didn't stop giving commandments and laws. In fact, quite the opposite. He gave a lot more information. He had told the apostles this is what was going to happen in John 16, verse 14. He says, I'm going to ascend, I'm going to go away, and the Spirit is going to come to you, and He's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to take what I give Him, and He's going to deliver it to you. 
You ever thought about that? So Jesus goes to the right hand of the throne of God. And then from that point on, Jesus is giving information to the Holy Spirit who's delivering that information to the apostles. And the words that the apostles teach are the words of Jesus himself. So when you read Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians 6, where did these words come from? Oh, they're not as important as those red letter words in Matthew. Some people say they're not as important as those red letter words in Luke that Jesus actually spoke on earth. Yes, they are. They absolutely are as important. And the reason they are as important is because of where they came from. They came from Jesus himself through the spirit to the apostles, to the world. And that's why the apostles write things like this in the New Testament. When they write, for example, the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, I thank God that when you received the words, the words you heard from us, that you didn't receive them as the words of men, but as they truly are, the words of God himself. When Paul and, and the other apostles came and preached to people, they, they listened to those men and they believed that what Paul was saying was actually coming from Jesus Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. They believed that. And so when Paul writes or teaches or preaches a sermon about this subject or any other, by inspiration, where did that message come from? It came from the Lord. It does not do and it is not accurate to say Jesus never talked about this. During his earthly ministry, we don't have a record of him mentioning this, although he may have and it's just not recorded. But he does talk about this in books like Romans. Who wrote Romans? Jesus. Who wrote 1 Corinthians? Jesus. Who wrote 1 Timothy? Jesus gave the information through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. We need to know where the Bible originated if we're gonna handle arguments like this. These are five ways that a lot of people would use to try to say, maybe this is okay. Maybe this is something that we shouldn't be so concerned about as Christians. Brothers and sisters and friends, we have to handle God's word aright. We have to be careful in how we treat God's word. God's word has meaning and it has emphasis and it has content that is objective and that is unchanging and unchangeable. And we need to respect what God has written in his word. All of us do. I hope the lesson's been helpful to you or at least thought provoking to you. A lot of people use a lot of arguments to try to justify things that the Bible clearly condemns. Listen to God listen to his word. Maybe if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian, you're ready to obey the gospel. We'd love to help you with that. Believe in Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, be baptized for the remission of your sins before it's too late. Maybe you'd like to respond and ask for prayers. Whatever your need, won't you come forward while together we stand and while we sing.